Hello and welcome to How to Be an Artist, a new podcast brought to you by Soho House. My name's Kate Bryan and I'm the head of collections for Soho House and over this series I'll be talking to a global lineup of influential contemporary artists who all feature in our art collection. We'll be considering what it takes to be an artist and especially what it means right now. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Tal R. Tal R was born in Tel Aviv and moved to Copenhagen as a child where he is based today. He is known for his exuberant paintings that conjure bold, bright forms that question the world around us. His work shares something of the vitality of child's play, obscuring from view the complex investigations which were involved in their creation. I love his practice for its restless inquiry into what a painting can be and should be. He has said that he wants people looking at his paintings to feel that their ice cream melts faster than they can eat it. He has shown his work in many museums internationally and recently had a major solo shows at Hastings Contemporary in the UK, Mocha Detroit in the US, the Louisiana Museum of Modern Art in Denmark, and Tal held a professorship at the Kunstakademie Dusseldorf from 2005 to 2014. Tal, hello and welcome to the podcast. Thank hello. you for being with us. Thank you. Um, I love that quotation about people wanting to have the sensation when they look at your work that their ice cream melts faster than they can eat it. What do you mean by that? I mean that when you look at a painting, it should look like something that is quite familiar, something that you can you can have a simple discussion with. But the more you look at it, the more you get this kind of awkward feeling about it. It's like it's not quite like what you thought it was. I think in English it's called something uncanny about it. Mm. So that's a little bit similar that you are trying to eat an ice cream on a very warm summer day. And then the ice cream's melting away and you just can't eat it as quickly as you can, as it melts. Yes. It's a very um, physical description. And I, your work is, although your work primarily in two dimensions with the paintings, of course, they feel very object-based. They feel like you're sort of creating um, something which has got things at play, not just two dimensions, but also the senses. I, I, there's a lot crammed into those works. I think I never think of a painting as something flat. It's weird. Mm. I've never thought about it before. I actually think of them as objects. I think what I've tried at least the last 10 years is to make paintings that I can explain over the phone. Something quite simple about them. Something standing on a table, somebody walking down the street. Just just basic stuff that you can explain your mother over the phone. But when, when you look at them, when you experience them in life, they are what somebody explained you over the phone, but they're also something else, something you maybe can't place, something that sneaks on in on you in a, in, a, in a weird way. I think that's really interesting. Van Gogh talks about something similar, doesn't he, about wanting the paintings to have an immediate resonance. But of course, there's so much more going on beneath the surface. So Van Gogh would have been pleased with that, wouldn't he, to be able to call up Theo, his brother, who he wrote to endlessly and say, this is what my painting's about in one yeah. sentence. I mean, you know, for people to look at art, I think a lot of people, they feel they need a spe special language and they get nervous about their ordinary daily language. But actually, the first step into a painting should be with your everyday language, not with a very cultivated, exclusive language, just your normal language. But the next step you take into the painting, you have to create a language. So let's dive in by talking about the work that we've just acquired for Tel Aviv Sir House, which is launching in spring this year. We're really thrilled with the drawing. Can you um, talk to us about it? Yes. I mean, it's, it's as far as I remember, it's a tiny sheep and it's a shepherd. And uh, 
from what I remember of this drawing, it's me being jealous of somebody else's work. It's most likely, <laughs> it's most likely, it's uh, it's uh, some folk art that I saw somewhere where I got this jealous feeling. I thought I have to do something like that, and I I have to play with the basic idea of the shepherd and the sheep. This man standing like a flaneur with this little bit little animal, and then you know every every third week there's a new type of mathematic, you know, you go through as an artist, certain kind of pattern, certain kind of organizing, arranging. And I guess in those three weeks where I did the drawing of the sheep and the shepherd, I was into all these lines, trying to organize it into lines, trying to understand anything under, you know, the moon in lines. I think that's really interesting that you talk about being jealous of other artists. Maybe we can come to that. You were born in Tel Aviv, but you moved to Copenhagen when you were young. Um, so I was curious what your relationship is like with the city that you were born in. Have you spent much time there or is it a place that exists more in your imagination? I think even the, the city I, I live in uh, mostly exists in my imagination. So it's hard to say if Tel Aviv is more real than imagination. I think all cities are half imaginations anyhow mm. you're never really sure when you walk ar around the corner if the place you just passed by actually exists or it was just your imagination but Tel Aviv is you know the great thing about Tel Aviv is that it looks very similar the way you know the old part of Tel Aviv is the same as when I was a child and I walked around with my father visiting another uncle in some obscure apartment Bauhaus apartment and I'm so happy. I cross my finger every year I go to Tel Aviv that they won't clean it up, that it's still a mess. <laughs> and thanks God, it's still this beautiful mess. Of course, in the outskirts of the city, there's all these high-tech buildings. But, you know, just, just the virus outside town. The old part of Allenby, the old, the old streets, there is still the same beautiful mess. Mm. How much do you think your cultural heritage impacts the way you think about art and make your own work? You've talked there about the city that you live in now and the city of your birth both being cities of imagination to a certain extent. Um, so is cultural heritage something to you that feels concrete, that you can say, oh, this is from this or this is from that? Or does it feel like it's much more sort of metaphorical and abstract? I think it would be really scary if I could answer that question very precise. It's yeah, like I saying, agree. where where do I start and where do I end? You know, I as an artist, you know, if you want to paint something that is on your mind, you don't go to the library and start a lot of research and get a lot of knowledge about your topic. And the most important point for a painter, at least, is your imagination and how much you remember and how much, you know, your vision is about so any city you know i i prefer my imagination i don't know if i answered anything otherwise just ask again <laughs> no you did answer it i think um i think it's interesting that you you're alluding to the fact there that your painting comes more from your gut and your instinct and that there shouldn't really be anything between that idea and the canvas so the idea you know, if, of reading if you, a book if, or it, if Sorry that I interrupt you, but otherwise I will forget it. You know, if you want to paint somebody's face, 
when do you look at the face the moment you can't imagine it? When you have no more ideas or imagination about that face, you look up. But then you look down and when you, have, when you can imagine, when you have a sense of it, you don't look up. You only look up when your imagination stops. Mm. And that's the same with streets and cities. I mean, artists, they're not, artists are not good people. Artists are bad people. <laughs> and, you know, good, good, good people, they enjoy the moment. They run around and they look what's in front of them. Artists, they are so obsessed with what's, you know, in their imagination. So forget about artists. They're generally just bad people. <laughs> Do you think um, to be an artist is to be greedy for experience? I think there is... You know, there are all these emotions that most people, they possess, you know, and the desire to look at stuff, desire to experience stuff, you can call that greed. And I, I think an artist had, has this kind of greed, you know, but the problem is that there's a lot of, you know, greed is like a door that you can you can keep knocking on this door but you know sometimes it moves the other way it opens the, the other way around you have to wait for things to happen in front of you you have to spend time walking to 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 start the ignition i think everything i mm. said now sounded very confusing so you can just leave it out <laughs> but or try again from another angle <laughs> i know you i wouldn't understand i wouldn't understand what i just said but i understand what you mean don't worry okay, you've okay, used okay. the word um uh, a hebrew word actually um kolbolnik is that am i saying that right um yes. which means leftovers in hebrew so this fantastic sounding word to me is a language that i don't understand um kolbolnik i love that and you're you talk about that word in this in the way in which you source and collect a wide range of imagery and ideas and it can come from anywhere really like high culture low culture you've already talked about folk art or a friend's face can you elaborate for me on what kind of things appeal to you do, do different things appeal on different days or do you always have a bit of a fetish for one particular subject do you think oh that would be a great idea and you and it it always seems to come back to a certain type of thing or is it really as wide and various as, as it looks like from your paintings mm, first of all kolboining is indeed a great word and it, for me, it, it comes out of the kibbutz. When I was a child and I, we had to, you know, clean our plates in the dining hall, you cleaned it into the kolboinik, where everybody cleaned their plate. And then at a certain point, I think almost 20 years ago, you know, just like now, I had to explain myself. You have to understand when you sit alone in your studio, you don't really explain yourself to yourself. You work much more in an instinctively way but then, of course, mm. the moment the work leaves the room, you have to come up with an explanation. And 20 years ago, the explanation was Kolboinik. And it was, it was really because my studio at that time was not a traditional painter or sculpture studio. It was simply a room with a mountain of material. All this source material that I, have this, that I had these obsessions about. And, you know, you very much as an artist, you work with your obsessions, but you work harder to get away from your obsessions, to run away from your long tail of interest. Because actually, it's much more interesting. What are you going to do when you have no interest? And I think around seven, eight years ago, this tail was slowly worn down. And I, I would never use Kolboinik again about my work. Because seven, eight years ago, when the Kolboinik tail was 
worn down. My work became actually much more about looking, you know, looking around. Suddenly from looking down, I started looking, you know, more walking down the street, going into a park, sitting in my living room, you know. Is there an English word called gaze? What does gaze mean? Means Yeah, when you sort of just sort of stare or it's a, yeah. it's a light way of looking. I kind of, I could actually chew that word gaze. I could understand that this was something to do with what I mean. Actually, seven, eight years ago, I started more looking out of my eyes, looking into the so-called real. And that's also where the mathematic of saying, when do you look at a certain house that you find interesting? And when do you just look into your imagination? You look at the house when you have no more imagination about it. Do you think in a way that you released yourself from painting things that you thought you had a prior interest in, into this sort of uncharted territory. So therefore you could be in a space that felt a bit more risky. So rather than say, yes, I, I like X, Y, and Z and I've got them stored up around me as ideas in my Kolbolnik. Now I've kind of released myself from that. And then you go into a bit of a no man's land and then you go to this idea of the gaze or of looking. You know, artists, they will always say, oh, I, I try to challenge myself. And when I get good at stuff, I... Then I want to challenge me myself again. And then they are these kind of cre cre creative heroes. But it's also so boring to say it like this. I think it's more interesting to say that uh, maybe I'm really lazy. And the, <laughs> o the, only, the only way that I can keep working is, is if I get this basic feeling that I have no clue how to do it. That's mm. the only thing that can really conquer my laziness and it's it's a little bit difficult to explain it but you know when i started you know maybe 10 years ago say okay i want to draw live people people around me i came out of it you could say a background where you don't trust eyes hands nose teeth haircuts you don't at least you don't you don't trust haircuts and then to sit down in front of a person who looks back at me and start to draw them. At that point, I had no background. I had no art history. I had no knowledge. I had only clumsy hands and clumsy eyes. And I, I've, you know, that kind of masochism is really mm -hmm. the only thing that can challenge my laziness. Masochism against laziness. Mm. But you're you're talking about a moment in time, I suppose, when abstraction had reigned supreme for so long and we had conceptual art and new forms and new media and almost that there was a reticence to go near figuration to, to for artists to make still life sorry for artists to do um, drawings from life there was a nervousness about it almost like the camera had organized all of that and that wasn't cool anymore and then there was a the tide really turned do you feel that when you started to approach um painting and drawing from life having life models that you were that you were connecting in, in some way to art history or did it feel more, as you've just described, as a, as a way of making work which was risky and, and sort of masochistic because it was so, so hard at the start? First of all, if you take, you know, the most easy thing is to take a picture of somebody and then go back to your studio and, and paint after the picture. Why not? There's nothing, nothing bad about that. So the first question is, is it productive to sit in front of reality? 
does reality intimidate you in a way that it becomes productive? Which means, does it create better pictures? And that was maybe my question. And I think it's also, I also have to correct the word model because I don't like that. Actually, every anybody that I have been doing drawing of is people that I had to approach. I had to ask them, please, can we meet nine o'clock and have a cup of tea? Can I draw you? So that there is this hand reaching out, just like mm. when you reach out at something you, you see walking down the street. You you look into a window and you see something and your hand reach out and you you draw it, you paint it, you do whatever. So, you know, when I was teaching in Düsseldorf, we tried. I said, okay, let's try to hire a model. And it was impossible. It was like a real killer because even if people have never done live drawing before, they have instinctively they have the culture where they sit down, they have the the the, the piece of paper, they try to f- do the proportions. It becomes in- it becomes some kind of exercise. And and I don't believe in art as exercise. I don't even believe in art as an experiment. I think that's all kind of misunderstandings. Even the prestigious word of saying, oh, I'm just making experiments. Even worse, I hate when people say, oh, I'm just, I'm just experiment with the material. I'm just feeling the material. I hate that shit. <laughs> don't, don't talk to me about experiments. If you have anything to say, stand up on your chair and try and fall down the chair, make mistakes and go down again. Let people boo at you. But don't stand up and say, I'm just trying different words. I'm simply just trying my voice. Then just go go back home and peel some potatoes. Yeah, almost like you undermine what it is to be an artist if you constantly say you're experimenting because you should just be um, owning your creativity. Is that what you mean? You know what? You go into art schools and you have hundreds of artists and they only say this because they have hundreds of teachers saying to them, Go into your process of just feeling this material, just feeling the colors or just try out different ideas. And there is a little micro part of that that is correct, but most of it would lead into disaster because an artist forget that basically it is to articulate yourself. And Mm -hmm. I think the only reason why the idea of experiment is so popular in art academies is that the teacher feels responsible that the student will fail and the student will look at them with tears in their eyes and say, I failed again. But the artists just have to say, you know what? I'm not your teacher. Failure is your teacher. So just feel lucky. Mm. Is This is a um, strange question, but it feels like the right kind of question. Do you find painting easy? I, I feel like when I look at your paintings, they, if I go into an exhibition of your work in London, a Victoria Miro, for example, it looks like it just poured out of you. There's an apparent ease to the paintings. But when I talk to you about it, and I know about the complexity of the way that your brain works, I'm wondering if maybe it's actually tough for you to be in the studio painting. How does it feel? Mm. There's there's many different questions here, actually. And, uh, you know, I had, when when I entered art school, I was 18 and I was kind of a runaway from ordinary school. So art school was my alibi for leaving, you know, school. And I had 10 years where it was completely impossible for me. It was, it, I mean, it was not in my cards that I was going to be an artist because it was only rejection and failure and I, I couldn't handle it. 
painting is really a very sophisticated thing. It is complicated. Of course, it's complicated. And uh, I think anybody who has a certain level in a in a field doesn't matter if it's sport or it's if it's art. There is a certain place where it looks very easy. You know, mm. it it looks without force. But I spend, I think, most of my awakening hours. I think I even spent some of my my dreaming time in painting. How to how to do it, how to organize. You know hundreds ways of doing it. And you're all the time playing for a, a, a road that kind of expels you. Says, okay, now you're going down a road that you actually years ago announced that it, that's an impossible road. That's an impossible thing to go into. And that kind of game is so exciting that I, I you know, I every day is like... A fantasy going into the studio mm-hmm. but same time painting is really really sophisticated it's a very complicated thing the good thing is when you are 20 25 30 35 you don't really know how difficult it is it is so generous that it only explains itself you know the further in you get almost as if if people knew how hard it was and how hard it would stay maybe they wouldn't want to do it Maybe did you think when you were 20 that you would still be wrestling with the demons of what it is to be a painter, how to make a painting when you were a couple of decades older? When I was 20, I, I hated art. I thought it was the most ridiculous thing. It was only for me an excuse to leave school. So I, I, I thought when I was 20, I saw when I'm 21, I'm out of this. It's a little bit like what they said in, you know, the mafia movie, Godfather. I was trying to get out, but they keep pulling me back in. That was really <laughs> my 20s. <laughs> You're, as well as paintings, you make these fantastic opium beds. They're kind of like handmade sofas. You take these old um, and new rugs that you source from throughout Scandinavia and then treat them with paint and dye in the studio. And traditionally, we've been led to believe that something like a furniture or sofa or a bed or something like that is functional and therefore it can't be high art. And I'm wondering if you see a distinction between making the sofas and making your paintings. Is it a natural extension of your creativity? Is it equally valid? Or um, do you see any kind of distinction? Is there any kind of hierarchy, I suppose I'm asking? Okay, so when you do, let's say, a drawing or painting, you are over the years pondering around in different ideas and ways. And sometimes it also happens, which is actually also what happens in the drawing that you just acquired for Soho House, Mm. that you sail into some kind of ornaments. And ornaments is a very tricky thing because if you go into ornaments and you go further into ornaments, it starts eating you up. You go into all these patterns, all these possibilities. And... Also, when you go into ornaments and patterns, you also go close to a certain line where you can say, now this is more like what you would say applied art or it's more, it can, it can sail into becoming fabrics. It can be something people are wearing. So you, it is actually something that presents itself as an opportunity when you ponder around in your material. And at a certain point, you know, the idea of a, of a fabric and my love for craft in general made me, you know, do these kind of opium bits. I haven't done that many. I think we have done 10, 12 of them. Mm. And uh, it 
it it was just a possibility and there's all all these possibilities and one you know it's like it's a, a, a train station there's all these trains leaving and one of the trains i tried was this opium bit and would you would you treat them as sort of equally viable parts of your art practice even though you haven't made that many i mean i know painting is really at the heart and soul of what you do but for you the opium beds are more than just craft and what do you even think about that word craft? Because it's there's this crazy distinction. And I, I think we're we're living in an age where we might finally begin to have some answers to the way that we've created boundaries between these art forms and the way that we've kind of created a hierarchy and the way we try and basically exclude some things from the great art canon. I mean, first of all, the first thing to erase is kind of the hierarchy that something is better than the other, that yeah. art is better than cooking or that, you know, that there is this hierarchy. Just take that away and say, when does something get into the category of being art? And I think that has something to do with the, the less function. You know, when when does something become art? It's actually when the, the, le- the more tragic, the more art, which means the less that it has a, has a function, the more that the quality in, in the object, whatever it is, is beyond uh, something you can use. Something that actually makes you more quiet. This object makes you maybe the more art it is. It's not a guarantee. But I think it's a pity when chefs, they, they want to be artists. I think it's not a pity for me or for art. I think it's a pity for them. Because that's such a beautiful, great thing in being, you know, a certain kind of craft. That the moment they say we want to be artists, I think that they, they lose something. And I think also, I think it's a, it's a pity. I love, you know, all these different kind of crafts. And I think that they have so much depth and so much knowledge. And the moment they, the chefs, they say they want to be artists, I think that they give away something very important. Mm. That's so interesting. You, we've talked about you starting to work in the figurative tradition. And you've also made work that sits you know, somewhere that you would describe within historic traditions of sort of still life, that genre. And it's almost like you're trying to decode that genre. So you seem to resist the fact that normally objects have been particularly selected for some meaning or some resonance, you know, that they're special in any way. And in fact, you've said, I think that as an artist, the biggest challenge is to paint towards banality. Can you expand upon that for us? Because I don't think you're trying to be a contrarian. I think you genuinely think that there shouldn't be anything particularly special about those objects. And then that's where an interesting painting might be. I mean, anybody who have a phone in their pocket, which is most of us, if you go into your pictures, it's full of what I call banalities. People, they take pictures of places they go, people they meet, food they had, objects they love or they desire. If you go really in the back of their photos, they have they have boyfriend, girlfriends without clothes. You know, people are just still quite boring creatures. We are still into all these banalities. So if this exists in everybody's pocket, it's still a possibility for painting. It doesn't have that much to do with art history. We still have to do that. You know, technology might develop fast, but people are still people and quite uh, banal. So your paintings, in a way, are reflecting ourselves back to us. It is still, you know, it's still more or less the same. You walk down the street, you see something. You go into a park, you're sitting alone in your living room and suddenly you look at all these objects that you don't know why you put on your bookshelf, but they're there. They look back on you. 
And yet if you're an artist, you answer back. You make a drawing, you make a painting, a film, mm. a poem, whatever. So what's your relationship like with art history? You said at the beginning of your career, you you know, you didn't feel like you had any understanding of art history. How do you feel now about comparisons being made between your work and something like, I don't know, expressionism or fauvism or symbolism or conversely, people saying something that there's a parallel to artwork outside of the great canon, you know, such as outsider art or folk art or the art that children make. How do you so, feel about all those words and distinctions? So if you go back to the idea of Tel Aviv, who walks around in Tel Aviv? Yiddish mama. What is the Yiddish mama? That somebody who would say anything my son or daughter are doing is just great. And they will always embrace it. Art history is a little bit like a Yiddish mama. Whatever you do, you know, art history will just embrace you. You can't do anything that doesn't exist in those big greedy arms of art history. So there's <laughs> no, no really worries about it, you know. As a young painter, you would always search for your possibility in the periphery of what is called painting. You would try to do some, and therefore you would all say, I don't care about art history because you understand art history is this big mother who's just going to embrace you in this uh, cramping, uh, um, choking way. You don't want to get choked as a young artist. The older you get, you understand whatever you do as a painter, the big Yiddish mama will anyhow choke you doesn't matter what kind of pattern, she will just expand her arms and, and uh, uh, swallow do you. Think, you. Do you think, yeah, do you think eventually she'll swallow you and suffocate you? Does it turn from a hug into a suffocation? I think you, you, you're, you're asking something very interesting because, you know, if an artist keeps developing, he keeps finding ways out of the big mother's arms. If the artist mm. gets stuck, that means... The, the answer to your question, suffocation. Mm. Right. So you've got to be like a wriggling baby. Like an eel. <laughs> um, your work for me feels quite paradoxical. Sometimes I look at them and they feel bounteous and bright. And then other times they're quite portentous, like there's some loss or absence. And I was wondering if the difficulties that we've all faced in 2020 affected the way you were working. Is there any impact on your work? Are we going to see paintings um, which are a bit more doom or are we going to see things which are more hopeful? Do you have no sense? Do you have any sense of how 2020 actually affected your painting practice? Can you see it? I met a, a friend on the street yesterday and I asked me, kind of talked something similar, your question. And he said, I actually felt when I left Art Academy 25 years ago, Corona started. I mean, the idea of isolation, I think is quite familiar with artists because you spend most of your day alone in the studio. Mm. But, you know, if I ask myself, what have I been doing the last year? I've actually been drawing a lot of flowers and vases. That means going out, finding a, a flower, picking it up, going into a shop, buying one, finding a vase, putting it on the table, doing a drawing of it. And, you know, maybe doing a few drawings. And after a few days, the, the, the flower collapses, which is such a grand moment that it, it, it kind of uh, falls apart in front of you, mm. which is something very basic cultural. If this has anything to do with Corona, I don't know. I could ask you. Mm. I didn't. I think it's wrong to sit down and say now it's Corona, now it's a pandemic, now I have to 
relate to this. Whatever you do, you know, should it should come in a natural way. So I've yeah. been doing flowers and vases. And if it, this is, uh, if it, if there is a connection, please let me know. <laughs> For me, it's the opposite. I stopped buying like tulips last spring or this spring because I can't handle the way that they droop down. It's almost like a kind of, it looks like a suicide to me. It's so violent the way they're so beautiful one moment and then all their strength has gone the next. And I thought I do not need to see that right now. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I need to see this on a daily basis. Mm. Control of disaster. Control of disaster. That's interesting. This podcast is called How to Be an Artist. So how do you think one should go about being an artist? And also, why should one be an artist? And your answer earlier was to escape, <laughs> escape school. But is there an answer beyond that? Mm. You know, you, you, most of us, we are, we are not born by a, a stone. We are born by, you know, a mother and a father. And then, you know, you, you, you grow up. And the most normal thing would be when you die, then you, you put your bones back into your mother because you came from your mother. And, you know, that would be a normal procedure that you go back into your mother. But we all know that's not the case. We go into nothing. That means there's, when you grow up, you understand there's this big nothing. You come from nowhere and you go to nowhere. So there are all these different ways to keep up a discussion with nothing. You know, people over the last thousand years have created all these kind of religion that try to make a monopoly on, on nothing, to say, oh, nothing has this name and nothing demands you to do this. But I think basically to be an artist is really to have a lifelong discussion with nothing. Wow. And that's That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't think of a, a more philosophical and brilliant answer thank you so much Tao we're so excited to have your work in the Sarah House collection thank you and goodbye goodbye